following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. G'day everyone. Welcome to another Co-Canberra, Nina Canberra meetup. My name's Scotty Foster. I've always had a bit of trouble figuring out how to introduce myself, but uh, I took a leaf out of Joel Salatin's book and now I call myself a solar-powered radio broadcasting organic growing cooperative creating earth and people protecting lunatic worker from Canberra. Co-Canberra, what is Co-Canberra? Co-Canberra is a, uh, a group that began in early 2017. It came out of a, a workshop that a bunch of youngsters put on a cooperative networking day in Canberra, essentially. Um, and since then, it's sort of been followed up by Sea Change, who was still a member of Sea Change. We were one of the uh, sectoral groups running out of Sea Change Canberra. And uh, we're working to build a new and just economy. We're uh, working on two uh, cooperatives at the moment. One is a renewable energy co-op called PrePower, which uh, allows access to solar power on domestic homes for people who may not be able to afford it otherwise, um, amongst many other things. Uh, and we're also beginning a uh, regenerative farming cooperative, which is designed to uh, basically build a re regenerative food system for the Canberra region. We've got a radio show which runs every week on Friday mornings from 9 to 10.30 uh, where we talk to people who are making the world a better place. And every month we do a more intimate um, question and answer session as the Co-Canberra Nina Canberra meetups, uh, which is where you are right now. So today we are joined by, uh, by Mr. Jason Richards from the Resource Work Co-op um, I'm not going to introduce the resource work co-op too thoroughly because um, Jason's here to do that for us. <laughs> um, Jason, take it away. Tell us what is the uh, the resource work co-op. Thanks, Scotty. Um, <clears throat> hi, everyone. Um, I'm Jason. I'm the coordinator of Resource Work Cooperative. Um, we're a let's go consensus-based, non-hierarchical workers, non-for-profit workers co-ops, um, focusing on waste minimization education about waste minimization and creating sustainable employment for Tasmanians. Um, we, yeah, basically we work at a tip and we go through the rubbish and we sell it to sell all the usable stuff we can to keep it out of landfill. That's our biggest goal is to keep all the usable stuff that we can keep circulating it until it comes to its natural end rather than throwing away useful goods. Um, resource started in 1993, um, which was just five friends who lived in the suburb of Glenorchy Glen out in the north of um, Hobart. They saw the huge amounts of good quality reusable goods going into the landfill at Glenorchy, so they spoke to the council and decided to, to do something about it, and they opened up um, the Glenorchy tip shop with five people in 1993 and started salvaging directly from the landfill. And when it opened, um, it was quite a new thing for Hobart. Nobody really got it. So uh, for those first two years, we didn't, we had people buying, but we didn't really have people donating. So everything we took, we took directly from the landfill. So it was a lot of climbing through the mud, looking like actually almost like searching for buried treasure, which was really good. So um, <clears throat> that was really taken to the local community by heart really quickly. So um, first thing, so then two years later, we opened up the South Hobart tip shop, um, which is, you know, probably 20 kilometres away and tried to recreate what we had done at Glenorchy in South Hobart, which worked really well. Actually better than Glenorchy because the South Hobart community 
um, already had a big interest in ecology and, you know, doing all the right things in the environment. So they took to it and took us to their hearts really quickly. Um, so by, so yeah, 1995, we opened up in South Hobart and we also opened up our art exhibition, which we thought was the easiest way to promote ourselves. So we started doing art from trash, um, which still run, well, currently on hiatus due to COVID and uh, another incident that I'll tell you about. But um, yeah, that's been running since 1995. It's turned into the biggest art exhibition in, in Tasmania. Every year we get about 5,000 people coming through and looking at all the crazy stuff that's built and somewhere between 100 and 150 artists, community groups, like anyone who wants to join in, like the only prerequisite is you use about 90 to 95% of recycled materials. That um, hopefully <laughs> we'll be able to have that again next year and we'll celebrate our 25th anniversary of Art From Trash, which will be great for Hobart because we're kind of a little bit sick of telling everyone, just hold on because for us to not have it for two years running is, you know, it's a huge thing on the sort of Hobart social calendar and we, it's our favourite thing to do. So hopefully we get back to that next year. Um, Everything was great. Then um, in 1999, um, we'd been running for, you know, six years. There was the co-op sort of uh, split into two groups, one that wanted a traditional boss and profit-making and one that wanted to keep our workers cooperative and especially consensus-based non-hierarchical routes. So we split the co-op into two, those that wanted to form a, co a profit-sharing group, kept the Glenorchy tip shop and resource now runs only the South Hobart tip shop and we both have very different goals and both are working well but we stayed at the South Hobart tip shop because we found that it just the South Hobart community really supported us not just as a tip shop but as a you know a workers cooperative and doing something on our own for the community without any help that's the biggest thing that um makes us different especially even in Hobart is that we're completely self-funding we don't get any funding from any government bodies or anyone else everything we do we do off the back of our work and our labor and everything comes from the rubbish that people are throwing away so every year um, say for the last three years we've taken somewhere between 1 million and 1.5 million kilograms of waste coming in from either salvaging donations from the public or from our other arms like our deconstruction arm where we ethically deconstruct buildings and then put all of the stuff probably about 90 percent of the building materials into the shop for people to buy um also with like our scrap and e-waste department which is growing rapidly at the moment we can't keep up with the amount of stuff that's coming in there so there are two biggest growing departments at the moment decon is a great one um, we're really trying to push that at the moment, although uh, we've been doing it now for, God, over 10 years. Um, we, it comes in fits and starts. Sometimes it's really, really popular and we get a lot of residential um, people renovating houses and rebuilding wanting to do it because they can use some of the materials and they can also feel good about their reno. Um, but we're struggling with more corporate and government ventures because it's more it's much more about the money and it is quite expensive to pull something down by hand um, rather than just demolishing it. So that was, that's that's one of our big ones for the next year to really push and try and get that going again. Um, COVID really knocked that about, especially the building industry. And at the moment down here, there's the building industry is going crazy, but it's all about time and getting things done quickly. So we're hoping to, um, yeah, regenerate that a bit this year and um, get some more decons happening. Um, 
what else? After Deco, once we started up, um, like once we got the co-op back and st- sort of solidified South Hobart, we then opened up a collectibles um, CBD store where we took, because we just didn't have the space. We needed more space. So we opened up a city store, which was really good. Um, we had it for about 10 years um, until we closed it down in 2015 because we lost the building. But um, where we are in South Hobart, there's no public transport. So we're kind of in a position where you have to be able to get there on your own. So it does take a lot of the lower socioeconomic people in the area out of coming to us and actually utilising us because there's very little public transport in Hobart at all. So we're hoping to open up a more centralised store again so we get more people coming through so we can get more customers to move the stuff along because at the moment um, we've had a bit of a drop in sales. So the donations keep coming in, keep coming in, but there's a bit of a lag on the sales. So unless we start marketing secondhand down in Hobart again it kind of um sort of hobbles us a bit because if the stuff's not moving out in the store we've got nowhere to put the stuff in the store so people love to give it to us but they're less likely to buy it at the moment so um yeah that's that's a new one for us we usually don't have that problem but yeah the discrepancy between buying and dropping off is getting harder and harder for us to deal with because of space um Another other stuff that uh, another interesting thing that we're doing, we're doing more community stuff is we're starting up a new a new art exhibition called Appleland, which is a historical Tasmanian um, exhibition because we get so many photographs and historically significant books, especially Tasmanian stuff. Some of it we don't feel it's right to sell for someone to put on a shelf. We'd rather sort of stockpile it until we can find a space to display it because a weird thing about Tasmania is that Tasmanians love their history. So every time we do these sort of small things where we're showing people their history, they love it. And it, um, it extends that, um, the preciousness of the past. And it sort of makes people question, you know, what are we going to do with our old photos? Should we throw them out? Should, what should we do? So we're sort of, we're stockpiling. We've probably got about five pallets worth of photographs and stuff that we hope to put on another exhibition later in the year. Um, just because we've got to do something with it. Otherwise, nobody sees it and it, yeah, we'll just turn to dust. Um, then we had, in 2004, we had our first of many um, disasters. Um, our shop, our tip shop burnt down. So we lost um, the whole site. We had still had this shop in town, um, but it took about um, 18 months for us to get the, the um, tip back up and running. So uh, that happened in 2004. We got everything back up and running, but that started a conversation with the council about the space. And so that started sort of plans for the future where they would build us build us a purpose-built tip shop, which we actually got in 2015, which is um, sort of an 800-square-metre internal store, and we have a 200-metre shed outside for electricals and 400 metres of covered driveways for us to have donations and storage area. So that really turned around the tip shop and the increase in the amount that we could actually divert from landfill. That was when we almost, in that first year, we almost doubled the amount of um, goods coming in and going out of the store, which was really good. That also very soon after that coincided with uh, an ABC program called The War on Waste, which was incredibly beneficial to us um, because Tasmania, you know, it gets so cold in winter, we used to have pretty much a winter slowdown where everything stopped and we could focus on you know the shop and infrastructure that as soon as war and waste hit that has never happened again we are just constantly flooded so um we've jumped on that we've done a uh with their second series our coordinator at the time molly was one of the mentors with the Tarina high doing their um 
I can't remember what the things we're doing worm farming. Um, but yeah, we're really pushing that now because it's we've realized that um, the media love us, and so we want to use that to extend the reach in Tasmania because we're such a small community. It's kind of horrifying the amount of waste that we deal with just sort of in a let's say 10 kilometres circle around us. And Tasmania is such a small place with such beautiful, pristine environment that people automatically want to do something good for it. So the more we can get into the media, the more we can show our face on what we do, we hope the more people will jump on board and if not come and, you know, actually come to the shop, then think about, you know, what we're doing or think about how they can, you know, make some change, make some small changes in their lives that is going to help. Um what else have we got? There's so much. 25 years is a lot to get through. Um, what's more interesting? Oh, 2009 is when we actually started officially our deconstruction arm. We'd done a few before then, but that's when we really started and created a dedicated department, um, department with a, a manager who went out and sought jobs. Since then, we've probably done about 20 different deconstructions, mainly residential houses. Um, the other biggest one is shop fitting. So we'll go in and um, pull out a, sh like, just, rip out all the shop fittings in a shop um most of the people we don't we charge for it but we can charge a rather low rate um compared to something you know anyone else because then we we make up the money by selling those things on and generally yeah we get rid of about 95 percent of everything um that we deconstruct the last one we did we actually did the 100 year old floor in um, town hall in hobart and that proved that was a really difficult one because we were just prying up a floor, a wooden floor. But every piece of wood that we pried up was sold to people in Hobart. Uh, most of it couldn't be used for floorboards because it was so old. But people, like, bought it because it was part of Hobart, because it had history. So we started e-waste, um, scrap and e-waste in 2010. Um, yeah, we didn't expect it to take off so quickly. And in the first year, we did 95,000 kilograms when we weren't really, we didn't know what we were doing. We just jumped in. And now, um, well, on a good year, we do about 500,000 kilograms worth of just e-waste, um, which is not even all electricals, just specifically computers and peripherals, not your general electricals. That one is growing really quickly and we hope um, in the next year to form a relationship with one of the co-regs and really start to um, make that bigger because there's no other real, there's no other e-waste processes in Tasmania. So we really want to uh, try and do that locally to create more employment and rather than just sort of, yeah, sending the e-waste somewhere else like we do now, actually do something with it here which will be really good. And um, yes, many councils around the area are really hoping we can do it. Um, same year, we started our community pickup service. So we offer free community pickups um, two days a week at the moment to anyone who needs it free of charge. Uh, we go out there, take what we can that can be, re be reused and resold. And if we can't take it, then we advise them of a, their recycling options, or B, we will, for basically just the tip fee, take it away for them and they'll cover the cost of the tip fee because everyone has to pay to go to the tip, which is um, really good. That one is really good, especially for um, community groups. We work sometimes, we work with the Migrant Resource Centre, moving people in and out of um, their accommodation. Um, that one is, yeah, that's always just something we do for the community, but we hope to eventually be able to run that five days a week, covering the costs with all of our other departments. Um, 2015, we finally got the shed, which was great. Um, compared to the other shop, our other shop was basically 
uh, I think it's a 10 by 10 meter square shed. This was 500-ish meters squares of stuff. We never thought we'd fill it and we filled it in a month, um, which was great. And now it is constantly full to overflowing. Um, and we're at the point now where we're considering an, a second site of a similar size, so um, in a different area. So we can yeah, continue taking in all the stuff and again replicating what we've done in another site since we've opened this another five tip shops around the sort of Hobart metropolitan area have all opened and all there is still a need for more of them so we hope to yeah go somewhere where there's none and um open yet another one um 2017 which is one of my favorite things we opened arts parts which is an art supply, um, sort of a standalone art supply store on the site where anything and everything gets its last chance before it goes into the tip. Anything we're not sure of what it is or if it's small and strange or something like bottle tops, things that, you know, traditionally kids use, we put them all up there. Anything and everything gets a chance because we look at it, it's like that's somewhere where people can use their imagination to find creative ways to use those little bits and pieces or those odd bits of plastic or wood um, in a different way. So we, we do a lot of workshops during those days. We open it up every second weekend and we'll do accompanying workshops so we can show people what you can do with the stuff, which are always free and just sort of a bit of fun to have. But the goal with Arts Parts is to get people really looking at all sorts of waste in a creative way. Um, we found that the easiest way to get people excited about, you know, recycling or reuse or upcycling is to make fun and cute or beautiful things. Everyone's, you know, recycling is sort of seen as such a hassle, but when you're shown something really beautiful made out of a whole bunch of, you know, what's traditionally rubbish, it changes your opinion of it and it gets you to start looking at those sort of resources in a different way they're not waste they're actually valuable resources that can be used by almost anyone so that's a really good one that one um just gets bigger and bigger we get a lot of that one is just in particular loved by teachers and so we actually market um sort of end of the year beginning of the school year and after each term to them and we make sure we've you know sort of try and stock it if we can relating to what the coming cur curriculum is so they sort of have a see a link between what they'll be teaching and the goods that are in the store which they really like because it helps them do their job and it also um they know that if they want a workshop or something we know what the curriculum is so it's kind of marketing our workshops to them in slightly an underhanded way but knowing that they know what they're going to get they know that we can um further their teachings in school and reinforce it with the stuff we do plus the kids really love coming to the tip shop where we can tell them all the stupid stories and all the fun things we find and they get very excited when they get in the shop and just see all the stuff which is really cool and um now I'll tell you a bit about <laughs> a bit about some of the troubles that we've had over the last few years um so I don't know if you know, but in 2018, there was a massive flood in Hobart. Um, overnight, there was 130 millimetres of water hit Mount Wellington. We are literally at the base of that. So we lost everything. We had about a foot of mud and thousands of litres of water come through our shop and our site. And completely, yeah, we lost 95% of our stock and pretty much all of our infrastructure. Um, the reason I tell, the reason I really like telling this story is because on the morning it happened, we thought we were done. We just thought, that's it. We can't come back from this. It was the whole tip site, everything. Um, but within a day, we sort of all took a day and took a breath. Within a day, the whole co-op came back on a Saturday when most of us weren't working and started cleaning up. 
And within a month, um, we were back open. And that was because of the work that people put in above and beyond. It wasn't that we were trying to get our jobs back in or make sure the money was coming back in. We knew we had to do it for each other. We knew that we were all we had. We didn't have any support from, you know, the council. The whole of Hobart was flooded. There was, you know, everywhere was just ruined. And so we, for the first time, really came up against it and got through it really quickly. And those of us who are still there now, we look back on that time as one of the best times we've ever had. Yes, it nearly, it sort of, it nearly broke the business, but it solidified us as a co-op and a group of people that will do what needs to be done without without worrying about who's getting paid or what. We just had to do what was done and it got done and we were back on our feet without a, within a month. And the day that we opened oh, was ridiculous. Um, we just had a flood of cars. We had barely any stock. We had nothing. And within a few days, people had, were just ridiculously generous with us and had us restocked and telling us, you know, bringing us cakes and bringing us food and making us known how much of a part of the local community resource was, not just the tip shop, but us as people and as members of the community. It was really, really lovely. And then a couple of months later, <laughs> we came to work and our forklift had been stolen out of our shed and driven through our office wall where they stole our safe, just like a movie. It was like a safe heist movie. They literally broke into our shed, used our equipment against us, stole our forklift and, yeah, used it, stole our shed. Then two months later, we came to work again and our truck was missing and it was the same people. They stole our truck to use it in a robbery at another place and dumped our truck in the bush, which we got back, which was great. But these, like, adversities, like, they are, they are what keep us glued together. It's a really strange thing, but... When something happens, especially now, and especially as we've come to a really solid time in the co-op, we haven't had a lot of um, people, you know, a lot of changes in people unless there's new departments or new roles in the last five years. So a lot of the majority of the co-op have been through all of these things. And every time we have a disaster, we just sort of, you know, dust ourselves off and keep going. And as we were coming up to COVID, we kind of, you know, we're all starting to think about it. And we were, because we knew I know it sounds trite, but we all had each other's back no matter what was going to happen. We knew we were okay. We'd get through it. We worked out before we even knew about JobKeeper or any of those things. We knew we had a plan as to what we were going to do and how we were going to survive. And then great, JobKeeper came in and all that was thrown out the window and we all got lots of money. It was terrific. But um, the problems with COVID were ones that we didn't um, actually foresee, especially with lockdowns, because we have... Because we run, um, we have a board of directors of um, five people plus the coordinator who's generally, you know, part of the management team. Um, those six people held the co-op together and did all the work and got the job keeper and sorted everything out. So that brought a very different feeling into the co-op. There was actually a lot of resentment by sort of the management team because everyone else came back going, we had a great holiday and it was terrific. And so the last sort of few months, we've been trying to work out how to avoid that in the future. And since <sighs> since November last year when we had just coming out of COVID and then um, we came to work and our shed was on fire. Um, someone had broke into our shed. They'd been stealing from us and got, they realised that they were on camera and burnt our shed down. So we lost a third of our site in November last year coming out of COVID. But again, we closed down for two weeks, cleaned it up and we're, we've lost uh, that. We've lost all of our covered space plus um, our e-waste facility, our electrical facility, our storage spaces. But 
this year has been our most profitable because we had to come up with ways to make sure we could still get the stock in. We don't have cover now. So it rains nearly every day in Hobart where it's frosty. So we've had to really work on our workflow. So all of these setbacks and disasters have led us to becoming stronger and becoming better at what we do and not relying on all of those, you know, not relying on all of the things that we've relied on in the past. We literally are working out of a container um, at the moment for our drop-offs and we, we're, you know, getting our you know, stock in like triple, like three times as quick as we ever have before because we have to. And again, it's that thing. It's when a group of people, when we don't have a boss, when everyone gets to have a say in the decisions that are made, everyone gets invested. And so when things go bad, everyone's ready. Everyone's ready to do the work. We find that when things are running smoothly, that's when things go wrong because people aren't being vigilant. They're just kind of, yeah, everything's great. We don't have to think about it. But these constant over the last few years, like trials, they've actually made us um, work on everything. Nothing at the moment seems to be a problem. We're battling through it. We're getting through it. And we're finding it easier and easier every time. And we put down that down to the work we've done as a co-op and as a group of people where every single person is important and every single person's opinion is valid. And we find some of the best um, ideas and the best solutions are from people who don't generally talk or aren't the loudest person in the call, but they think about things. And so we, it's really important to create that space for everyone to have a say, no matter how hard it gets. And the larger we get, the harder it gets, especially at 33 people, you know, having, especially a Zoom general meeting can be torture and it can go on for hours. But as frustrated as we get, we all know that that's, that's, that's the magic. That's, you know, you put in the slog, you go through the problem and we, we get great results. So we're still here after everything, 25 years of craziness and the last five years of a massive disaster every year. And we're still going forward. We've just had a massive restructure. Um, we've just created a, a, created a bunch of new roles. We've just started another new trial, which is timber reclamation, where we're taking old timbers and, you know, putting them through a thickness and making them much better, look much better so they can be used sort of, you know, in better quality design. So, yeah, even with all of this, the the work you put in it, the work you put in when it's not important, the work you put into each other is what gets you through everything. Like I I have no doubt the next one that happens and we're on schedule for another disaster in the next couple of months, um, we'll get through it and we have no doubt about that and that creates a really a really safe, a really safe place to take risks and not just financial, but risks of all sorts that, you know, you'll get through it sort of, you know, you'll get through it with your mates and that, that sort of, that friendships that we've created, they might be work friendships, but they're genuine and they're real. And we know we can rely on each other when the shit goes down and it does go down quite a lot in Hobart, but um, yeah, it's great. We love it. And yeah, we're growing bigger and bigger all the time. So you should all come and visit. <laughs> That's pretty much the whole of resource. So has anyone got any questions? Look, look I'll start off. It's Kevin oh. here. Um, okay. Whereabouts is the South Hobart tip? Um, the South Hobart tip is in a place called McRoby's Road Gully. So it's um, just right below the mountain, just behind the Cascades Brewery. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm interested in how did you finance your um, uh, your new your new um, building? 
when you uh, we didn't actually um the council offered it offered it to us we'd proved ourselves in the preceding 10 years and we were kind of growing in a really random bizarre way with just sort of putting fences up and it was honestly getting a bit dangerous and didn't look too great and the council yeah the council came to us knowing the value and knowing what we could do if we had proper support and a proper building and so yeah they build it for us under the sort of um agreement that we would work with them on there towards uh 2030 zero waste in hobart so we're a really big part of that plan that's how we got the place look i'll pass it on to uh Michael, who's eating, uh, to ask the next question. Sure. How do you know I have a question, Kevin? Oh, I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I know it's a, it's, it sounds like it's a small part of your overall operation, but the, um, the art, um, art from trash, I have a few friends who would be very interested in that. Um, how, how is that run? Um, great question. I'm, I'm actually the manager of that. Um, that's my, yeah, as soon as I got my hands on that, I'm never giving it up. It's my favorite thing to do. It is great. Um, basically we, we have a relationship with one of the large galleries down here, the long gallery, and we go there every year. They, are they give us good, they give us mates rates because we're their largest exhibition um, of the year. So it's in all of our interest to keep it going. Um, every year we put out a call in February um, for artists. They put in, um, they pay a fee of $25 just for admin costs. And then we end up with, yeah, last time 135 um, different works of art and 140 different schools, artists, community groups. Um, yeah, I basically put together a running sheet on a week before we start bumping and we bump it into the long gallery where we set it all up, have an opening night on the Friday night, which is huge and about a thousand people turn up with, um, yeah, you know, all the local glitterati and aldermans and councillors and everyone who thinks they're somebody. And then, um, yeah, we run that for 10 days. Uh, during that time, we have a lot of school tours come through because we have a huge section of school kids that do a whole heap of really wonderful stuff. And so all the schools come through. We get a lot of different groups coming through and some um, sort of private viewings for councillors and um, members of parliament. And, yeah, then it's it's so, like, I hate to say it, but it's so easy. It's so, it's so fun, so easy. Um, it's a great, and it's also a great way to explain what we do um, we make sure that we have the exhibition, but we also have like a huge selection of really fun stuff from the tip shop, you know, interesting collectibles and fun clothes, stuff that we collect all year, really odd stuff and stuff you wouldn't, you'd really have to look for in the tip shop to find. So um, we call it a taste of the tip and um, yeah, promote what we do. We also have, um, we make sure we have different workers there, <laughs> sometimes in uniform. So people will ask them what we do sort of what do you do there and um hopefully yeah we use it um great as reuse but also to promote ourselves and because it is you know a fun big event we get a lot of press for it which is really good and you should all do an art from trash do an art from trash in canberra we haven't trademarked the name um there's a new one i used to work for a place in sydney called the bowery some repair center at marrickville they've just started one um there's another one opening up somewhere in Logan in Queensland. So, yeah, we really want people to do much more of it because it's just so fun and the, the, 
the work that comes out of people is just incredible. One of the last one we had, the uh, People's Choice Award winner, um, was a gentleman named um, Mark Sloan. He's Sloan Sculpture, and he made um, a slightly bigger than life-size bald um, and wedge-tailed eagle out of tools, like all rusty tools, and he split them all so it was all completely symmetrical. And then a few months ago I saw him on Facebook and he sold a life-size horse to a museum in America for a few hundred thousand dollars. It's amazing what people can actually do out of trash. It's great. Maya. Myra. Thanks, Kevin. And thanks, Scotty, for organizing. And hello, everyone. Um, I was wondering, Jason, um, based on what Scotty had shared with us, it, the co-op was founded in 1993, and there's 33 people. How it began from the beginning in terms of numbers and how uh, it grew or scale organically? Um, in the beginning, it was five people. And it has, it's grown through need, basically, um, because uh, that's our role. Um, our goal is to employ as many as people as possible. So our, our turnover, 80% of our turnover is wages. Um, so, yeah, we, we hopefully will grow to double the size with many different things, but it is very organic. It's only when we need it. Um, we don't create, if we need a new, we generally like, honestly, because in the past we've hired people into uh, sort of higher level or management roles that haven't come from the co-op and it's a very difficult transition without sort of coming up through the ranks. So generally we like people to come in as what we call a scrutineer because they're scrutinising the rubbish and um, then they learn all of the facets of resource. Then once you hit your probation, then you're free to do whatever. But we really, and even now we have put in a new thing, whereas if we do hire someone in, say someone for a specific sort of skill set like a finance officer or a finance manager, they will still have to do the probation of a scrutineer. So they learn everything that the scrutiny is so they understand how the place works and so they can, you know, any decisions they make, they're based on knowledge of how the place works rather than, you know, a financial number or something. So the people are the most important thing. Everything else, nothing else matters. It's, it's, it's our staff and yeah, our workers, they're the most important thing. So we, our, all of our only goal is to increase our workforce as much as we can while providing livable wages and conditions, which is really important. It's very hard to work at the tip. It's very hard to be on your feet all day going through rubbish. So, um, yeah, we try to keep people at four days a week. Um, and to so they have a very, you know, a really good work-life balance because, as you know, co-ops can take over your life. Thank you. No problem. So, do you have? Uh, uh, so, do you have everyone get the same wage? No, no. Um, it's very. It's not very far away. Um, our base rate is uh, for scrutineers and sort of level is twenty five dollars an hour. The highest rate that we have is would be um, our coordinator, coordinator, um, our board members, and our finance, um, finance and HR managers, and they would be twenty nine dollars an hour. So there's only four difference, four dollars difference in an hour, which still keeps it very close enough that there's not any resentment for anyone um, in the high level roles. It was a very, it was you know, even I've been with Resource now for six years, and when I started, um, I started as a scrutineer, and there was a lot of resentment towards uh, management and admin as if we didn't need it. And in in the last few years that I've been there, 
the changes that have happened so quickly um, wouldn't have been possible with having a really strong admin and management team and the co-op recognise that now. So we're moving into a space where it's kind of organically happening that the co-op are realising that um, maybe the higher level people need to have more more financial incentive to stay, let's put it that way, because we have lost, we generally get about five years out of a higher level person and then they move on because it's a lot of work to do for not a lot of money. So we're trying to stop that. So we keep we keep people a lot longer and make it more of a, uh, a career. And uh, you had your hand up, Peck. Lucas, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, I was wondering, could you talk a bit more maybe about the structure, um, sort of in the more, you know, bigger picture um, way or comprehensive way? And also um, on top of that, did you have to fire someone and how uh, I'm curious, you know, about the recruitment process and that sort of stuff. Yeah, we're not very good about firing people. Um, <laughs> no one's been fired since I've been there. Um, and in the history of resource, I think it's about five people that have ever been fired. Generally, uh, it happens during, at probation at the first three months where it hasn't worked out. That happened with three people. And the other two people I know were fired were fired for breaking the few rules that we have and that was for um let's call it violent outbursts so we struggle with firing anyone um and we will do everything we can to avoid that we've had instances in the recent past where people have been have come close to probably needing to be fired but we've instigated a performance management program and they're still here so that's that's yeah we we're not good at that but we try and avoid it everywhere that we can and as far as our structure goes um Okay, so 33 people. Uh, five, let's sort of, we'll do it hierarchically, but it doesn't really mean that. So we start off, we have a board of five, um, five board members who make all of sort of more substantial uh, financial decisions and strategic direction of the co-op. Then we have me as the coordinator. And then either side of me, we have our resource operations coordinator and hopefully very soon our resource education coordinator. And the three of us run it generally on a day-to-day day-to-day basis we handle all the stuff of the running of the co-op i specifically handle um people and new business um and media um the operational quarter handles all the operations and education in conjunction with me handles media and our whole education program and pretty much uh, we're sort of outward facing the resource quarter faces inwards then we have Okay, let me count them. Then we have work area managers. So there are department managers. So they would be, I've got a whole list here. There's a lot. So we have the site managers, which handle the tip shop um, uh, from trash manager, a collectibles department manager, electricals manager, pickup manager, decon manager, arts parts manager, computer and IT manager, scrap and e-waste manager, online sales manager, and Timbler reclamation manager. <laughs> so there, and then under that, we have um, all of our scrutineers. Now, every single person in all of those roles also does scrutineering, even myself. I still have a day or fortnight where I go in and I do the work on the ground, um, mainly because I like to keep, I, every, it's good to keep contact with everyone on that same level where I'm picking through the rubbish as well, I'm off salvaging in the truck. Um, so our structure, the non-hierarchicalness of it, we kind of force each other to do that. So if you are on a sort of, we, we sort of uh, are more responsible role 
it's really good to do a, a less responsible role, like one of them, you know, sit on the counter for a day, talk to the customers, talk to everyone. So that keeps everyone from getting resentful. And it's also really good to just get away from the desk and spend your day pricing and seeing what comes in. It keeps you connected to the shop and the people because it's really easy to get sort of bogged down in that paperwork and sort of talking to councils and all of that. Yeah, it's good to get back on the tip. So, yeah. And 30, yeah, I don't think there's... The only person that does a scrutineer is our HR manager, and that's all. And that's because we like it like that because if someone has to get fired, it's going to be her that's doing it. So we like she likes to keep a slight little distance, and we think that's good for HR too. Mm. And also, actually, follow-up question, if I can, um, a little bit about the, your decision-making processes and, like, uh, what kind of decisions who gets involved in. And okay. Um. We found the best way to sort of structure that a bit, a bit with financial um, sort of levels. So anything up to, for me, anything up to $1,000, I can make a financial decision on that. Um, any decisions that don't have a financial component, pretty much anyone can make that decision to start something or do something. Um, anything from $1,000 up to $2,500 is a decision that the board can make without question and then anything over $2,500 anything that changes um a role substantially or or a new role that's decided on by the whole co-op so most of most of the major decisions are done by at a general meeting by the whole co-op generally at a general meeting we get about two-thirds of the co-op so about 20 people varying people will make most of the decisions so it's a it's a good amount of the co-op it's rare that um a small group of people make a large decision which and chances are if that was going to happen we'd table the decision until we could have more people we do have a quorum process where um if in the event at a gm only um the minimum that the minimum people can be there is three people that's for a board meeting or a gm so there have been a couple of times where Significant decisions have been made with a really small amount of people, but they're generally decisions that everyone knows that are going to be supported by the rest of the co-op. But, mm. yeah, that doesn't happen very often. And how, how often would you have a general meeting? Uh, we have a general meeting once a month. Oh, we have great. a general meeting for the whole co-op once a month. We have board meetings. Oh, we have board meeting once a month, general meeting once a month, operations panel meeting once a month, and site manager meeting once a month. We have one each week, and the coordinator and the board chair go to all of those meetings. Mm-hmm. So, Michelle, do you have a question? No. No? Okay. Um, uh, Jones. Could you introduce yourself and, and would you have a question? Nah, not everybody's going to have a question, I don't think, Kevin, which is you know, oh, Here's Jones. Oh, here we Hi. are. Hello. Welcome. No, I guess, um, I guess I'll ask, why have you chosen to specialise in um, recycled materials, like especially from going recycled and off the lot as well? Uh, because... Because we saw so much stuff that um, could be reused, it was so easy. Like we walked into, we've walked into every tip and just seen the huge amounts of stuff that you can just pull out without doing anything to and resell. That's that's basically it. It was just there for the taking, and we decided that a 
hey, that's a huge waste of money, resources. It's destroying our planet. And all it is for us is to pick it up and put it in a shop and put a price on it. It was so easy to do that. And there was such a need that that's why we chose it. And every year we have a natural growth rate of around 10% without doing anything at all. Mm. So we, yeah, we'll keep doing it because it's still coming in. People are still throwing it away. And until people stop throwing away stuff that shouldn't be thrown away, we'll be here. I can see so much potential once we um, become more able to break down materials as well, like taking in that steel and refining it, getting rid of all the impurities, casting it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that that's our time. goal. Our goal is to sort of what we do now, we know is only that, you know, we're, we're scraping the top. Once we, um, once we get some or sort of, uh, we get the recycling, which hopefully will be happening in the next couple of years, we want to move into what can we do with it? turning it back into you know its raw materials creating molded plastic whatever's out of bottles you know whatever we can do we will do and we're just yeah that's our next sort of that's what we see our future is as recycling it into either products or raw materials for other people to create a new product yeah be awesome to be part of a distribution system for that in australia even just with raw materials Oh, you based in Australia as well. We're in South Hobart in Tasmania. Oh, incredible. I yeah. just picked up a 20 kilo bag of onions and they come from Tasmania the other day. <laughs> Everything comes from here. We're great. <laughs> Best food in Australia. <laughs> so a lot of minerals come from Tasmania as well, isn't it? Uh, not, so, not so much now. Yes, in the previous. Now it's mainly wood and wood chips and salmon which are all very controversial down here. But, yeah, a lot of the industry has gone so much now. Um, this, the, a lot of the mines have closed. Like, yeah, it's changing rapidly down here. Mm. Yeah, Victoria is such a hub for all directions. Yeah, that's why we like it. We're close mm. enough that, you know, Victoria is you know, an hour's flight away a boat ride overnight. So yeah, it's, it's good that we're here because we can, we can make an impact down here in a smaller way that actually is felt and we can sort of do it on a smaller scale and hopefully encourage people on the mainland to do it on a large scale. Mm. I'd love to see just a good network of giving people metal in general, like the right links and the right designs, just yeah. more materials, hardware, that's what we'd like to do. Yeah, a lot of it, like for us, you know, being a non-for-profit, you know, that's the huge, like to do that is an enormous amount of money. So our sort of, our future is partnering with the right people who've got more than us, but um, want to move into sort of a greener way of doing things. So we hope to, yeah, partner with some other people as yet. We don't even know who, but um, yeah, to sort of, yeah, get bigger business involved, get bigger corporations looking at it, not just as greenwashing, but as actually a money-making thing that mm. is worthwhile them to do on a business level, not just on a, oh, well, you should do this to save the planet. Yeah, so we've seen that in Canberra where it's kind of owned at some recycling depots and it's kind of a guaranteed contract as well where they've got all of it and no one's allowed to take anything out of the rubbish pile. Yeah, yeah. So um, them to do it. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't really defend that because that's exactly what we have in South Hobart Tip and the council. We pay for exclusive salvage rights um, to take the stuff from there, um, which, I mean, it's great for us, but it's also the reason why we will never, we will ensure that um, the stuff in our shop is always the cheapest 
that we can find it. We're very aware that, you know, we're in a privileged position that we can just take whatever we want from the tip. Whatever is dropped off there or donated is ours according to a contract. So we are very much, we're not trying to make the most money out of it. We're trying to provide a reasonable, if not cheap that well if not the cheapest then as cheap as the cheapest for people to you know use goods that came out of the ground we got it for free we don't want to make you know a million dollars we just want to get that stuff to the people that need it so it doesn't get wasted so, maria do you have one do you have another yeah, question yeah. thanks Kevin. i was just wondering jason when you mentioned the impacts of COVID, if there is any one that you figured was a positive change or pivot that you've made since then to your operations model? Oh, so many. Um, okay. <laughs> the weirdest one, and it's probably a lot of people have this, but um, cleanliness. Um, because we work at the tip, we're used to it being dirty. We're used to being covered in muck. With COVID, it actually made us realise how disgusting the environment that we worked in was, and it actually made us realise that we need to wash our hands more. We need to, you know, keep things cleaner just because we're used to it doesn't mean that average person walking into the shop is used to it. So it's really made us focus on those things and making our shop a safer, um, easier place to get around, basically. Yeah, really, um, because when COVID hit and when we reopened, we wanted people to come in and out as quickly as possible. We didn't want them hanging around for hours and hours. So we really um, sort of redesigned our shop. So it was easier to get in. It was easier to get out. There was a lot more flow. You go in one direction, follow the whole thing through and come out. So as far as the shop and our sort of yeah cleanliness, that's been the big impact of COVID. And that's still continuing to this day, almost without having to talk about it. People are just doing it, which is really nice. Scotty, do you have one? Oh, I've got lots, but uh, I'll wait for everybody else to... Uh, to okay. Um, Thank you. Lucas. Um, again, um, with the, you know, the workers' corp structure, mm -hmm. <laughs> quite curious about <laughs> yeah. all the nitty-gritty. Um, do you, are you also worker-owned? Like yes. Worker right. Yes. Every every worker, um, once you sort of hit probation, you become a co-op member, and every co-op member has an equal share in the co-op. Um, we value them at $1 each, um, and everyone has an equal share. Once we leave the co-op, um, then we get release that share, and it goes to the next person taking our place. Mm -hmm. That's the way everyone feels engaged and um most people actually, it takes a while, but most people realise it actually means something. It actually, you know, one person can really change the direction of the co-op with a good idea or a passionate idea. And that's something that is really important. You know? Yeah. So a lot, of the, a lot of the time people will say that a, a co-op really needs people to have what they call skin in the game or, or a big investment into a worker co-op in order for people to really engage. But that sounds like with a $1 stake, as an equal ownership, you've pretty much proven that to be incorrect because you've had extreme sort of help with all these disasters that have come. People have really come together with it. Yeah, and I think that's because we really try to um, live what we say. We don't say one thing and do another. Like anything, um, like, I mean, previous to me being the coordinator, I was on the board for the last four years and the last year I was board chair. Um Anything I ask of any cult member, I have to be willing to do myself. The dirtiest, filthiest, 
most dangerous, whatever, the most boring, whatever it is, if I'm going to ask you to do it, I have to be willing to do it. And that I think is the secret of us. Like that's our buy-in. We're all doing the same thing. All our work and our labor is our buy-in. We work hard because we're working hard for ourselves. We make the decisions on when we're having a pay rise and how much that pay rise is. Everyone gets the same. And that just egalitarian like feeling just that's the buy-in because we know that the world outside is a vastly different place. And most of us at the co-op have come from the corporate world or the academic world where we've hated it. And we've come here because it's like, oh my God, I get to do something I can feel good about and actually have buy-in into the decision-making process. And so, you know, yes, the lower wages or sometimes the filthy, gross stuff we have to do, it all it all is worthwhile. And that buy-in, that's the buy-in, is that we need no one. We just keep plodding along by ourselves with no help. And that's that's a really amazing thing when you're part of it. People have other jobs. Um, some people do, but um, generally, most people at the co-op might have um, a passion project on the side, but their job is resource, and the other things are sort of extras. Like we have a lot of artists and musicians. We have a lot of people who work um, sort of in different environmental building sort of things. Um, but yeah, predominantly, I'd say ninety percent of the co-op. This is our only job, and the other things we do are just little extras that we've always done so what are the what are the communication techniques that you use inside the co-op because obviously something where you yeah you've got all these people trying to trying to be equal and (laughs) communication is going to be a total key to it it is um (laughs) it's going to sound really strange um but face to face it works. We actually talk to each other face-to-face. We might put out emails saying, hey, this is something that's coming up or this is an agenda for a meeting, but it's when we get face-to-face. And actually, for me as coordinator, taking a walk around the co-op and actually, you know, taking time out of my day to go, hey, these decisions are coming up, what are you thinking about them? And getting real input from people face-to-face makes them feel like they're their input is important. It's easy for to ask for, oh, you know, who's got something to say on email? You didn't say anything, but actually taking the time to talk to someone before a big decision at a meeting and talk to as many people as you can gives, like, acknowledges that the importance of their part in the decision-making process and that personal interaction is really important to us. Like, we had a... We had another coordinator uh, earlier in the year and it didn't work out. Part of that reason is because um, we at Resource, we call ourselves a strange and wonderful beast because we're not normal. We don't work in ways that everyone else works in. We've worked out a way it works for us. So she found it very difficult to work our way. She would, you know, send out emails and, you know, send out bulletins and tech, and no one would get back to her. And she'd be like, why isn't anyone answering? It's like, just go and ask them. They're just over there. But she couldn't get it. So the personal touch... And that sort of um, the feeling of that we are a work family is the important part, that the willingness to have the conversation and take it to the next step instead of just emailing it out or, you know, putting out a, a, a co-op wide message on the internet or something like that. It's better to actually have the conversation. And those sort of, you know, old school communication methods are the best, the way it works best for us. So we just keep using them. And I guess the way you were sharing the roles around would 
give you a chance to actually work with people too because I've noticed during many jobs I've had, working with someone is a really good way to get to know them. Yeah, we, um, we like to, and with all of our roles, anytime one comes up, and it may come up like not because someone's leaving the co-op, just because somebody's, oh, I don't want to do that role anymore, I'm over it, or I've done as much as I can or it's not fulfilling or whatever. So they might move into a different role and someone else will take that on. So the person's still in the co-op. like So the knowledge is there, the encouragement from them to the new person, the handover, like, Working in multiple roles in a co-op is really difficult, but it's also really rewarding because there's constantly something else to do. Like at a certain point in the co-op, I have seven different roles, including board chair, which is ridiculous and should never be allowed to happen ever again. But it was great because I had all of these different groups of people and all these different people I worked with um, every day talking about something different. So it was it was really good for me and I work really well in that place. And having people like in multiple roles, like one day you like literally one day you might be a wham of, you know, collectibles, work area manager. The next day you're scrutiny. The next day is a board member day. So you're a board member. And then this other day you're, I don't know, you work in arts part. So you're doing a variety of jobs that keeps you interested because you're doing something else different every day and it extends your knowledge throughout the co-op so if someone drops out here there's always someone else to pick it up and and to be retrained in something or someone to jump in and help out so it, it really it's great it really is I've been able to do stuff at the co-op that I've never done never had any experience and never but the co-op's willing to give you a go and if you succeed great and if you fail oh well good try let's get someone else to do it. So it's it's the freedom to fail, which is really good in our co-op, is that we'll give everyone a chance. And if you fail, okay, you weren't the right person for the role, but it's not going to be of a detriment to you within the co-op. You're going to be applauded for having a go. Cool. And just before we move to Michael and Karina's question, do you train up people into the, the oh, yeah. what would be called the, the, the higher echelons of the, yes. the co-op yeah. business and everything? Whatever, anyone who wants to do a role can. And then we have um, certain sort of training requirements for different roles. And if you come into that role and you don't, you know, have that ticket or that qualification, we'll get it for you. The only prerequisite that we have is that if it's a substantial training amount, we ask you to stay in the role for a year um, to really, you know, give it a go and do it. And then you're free to go and you don't have to pay back any training requirements. We've had a few people in the past sort of, you know, get a big ticket item and then leave a month later to go off and do something else. And so, yeah, we just ask for sort of a commitment to the co-op if we're going to commit to re sort of giving you higher level training. But it's rare that somebody leaves the co-op. We've got people, we've got two staff members have been working with us since 1995. They've been here since like two years into the co-op. So we really we really want to hold on to people and we understand that, you know, professional development and personal development are part of that. So we do as much as we can and we're willing to, you know, sort of let anyone do whatever they want as long as, you know, there's a good outcome for that person and the co-op. Cool. Karina and Michael, did you have something? Uh, yeah, but um, I've already had a question. So Michelle. Oh, okay. So it's a really lovely story, Jason. I was just wondering, what kind of things do you sell? What are the main kinds of things? Oh, um, everything. We, we will sell everything. The only things we don't sell um, are sort of safety equipment, secondhand safety equipment, because you shouldn't do that. We don't, you know, you don't know what's happened to it. Things like pornography, firearms, um, 
basically anything, any sort of dangerous or suspect chemicals. Um, what else don't we sell? Oh, fireplaces, anything that could potentially uh, cause a fire or cause a problem, but anything else we will give a go. We will give the amount of tiny little weird 50 cent plastic items we have in the shop is ridiculous. There's <laughs> nothing, nothing too small, nothing too weird. We still sell videotapes and DVDs and tapes and records, like, yeah, everything. Because there's a market out there for almost anything secondhand. We just have to find the right buyer. We just make sure we don't have too much of one thing in the shop if it's not a big seller. Yeah. But we won't say no to anything. Thanks. Thanks, Michelle. Michael. Um, Yeah, I was wondering what your five to ten year vision for the co-op was. And I guess, uh, like, in that, would you be expand would, would you be thinking about expanding your workforce or yes yeah. I would say yes just yes um our five we're actually working in our um 10 to 15 year strategic plan at the moment uh because with um the city of Hobart having their you know zero waste by 2030 we've got to have an idea of what we're going to be doing because the tip will close in 2030 um and what we're going to be doing and how we're going to be positioning ourselves so we're anticipate a really large growth over the next 15, 10 to 15 years. Um, and that would be predominantly in scrap and e-waste. We hope to open up our own, like the, on a, a single site for um, e-waste because the, the amount that we could take in, especially once we um, get in with the co-regs, um, which we're working on now, um, we will open so another site for their, another a, a store in town so we can start having um, a collectible a collectible store and um, a sort of more, how do I put it, a more higher-end clothing store. I don't mean expensive. I just mean better quality. Um, we will also hopefully open another full site um, on the other side of the river because there's um, only one tip shop over there. So we're looking at opening three different sites over the next 15 years and taking over a portion of the tip once um, it's gone. We hope to move sort of where we are, sort of up the hill to the tip. We hope to move there so we can um, open a compost farm and start making our own compost because we used the tip has one but uh that's closing down and we hope to take that over because we've got a couple of people that um actually like run compost farms in their spare time so yeah we're gonna yeah hopefully uh, probably double our workforce in the next 10 years and hopefully end up with four different sites we hope so anyway <laughs> but yeah down here um with with the closure of the tip everything is changing and so um we're working really hard with the council to be a ro- very big part of that yeah so here um like jones was saying before it's a really weird situation they've got sort of these drop off centers where you back your ute up and chuck all your stuff into this little concrete chute and some bloke in a bobcat races out and shoves it into the thing and compacts it and it's like nobody gets a chance to scavenge anything. Yeah, that's um we've got one of those, a walking floor. Um but because we're there, uh we're at that walking floor seven out of eight hours a day. As soon as anything good drops in there, we grab it out. So that's mm. yeah, it's a it's a weird thing because most of that's it's compacted and it goes nowhere. Once it's compacted, it's just rubbish. Like I think um, it's really strange that they don't sort of everywhere, every drop-off point will should allow someone to come and salvage those goods because once they're compacted, it's broken. It's rubbish. It then just goes into the ground. 
Mm, so you've got the role of the bloke who's driving the bobcat who'll come out. No, day. no, no. Where we <laughs> we get in between the bobcat and the rubbish. So um, okay, yep. the council have uh, really pushed the tip to work with us. So they won't when they will wait for us to go through the walking floor before they compact it. They actually will pull stuff out of the walking floor for us and let us know that it's there. Um, they're actually a really big part of reducing their landfill as well because, yeah, <laughs> their numbers look better when we take stuff. So, yeah, they're really supportive of us. Um, more places should be do it. But the fact that we're a non-for-profit, that we have a contract with um, Hobart, City of Hobart, every other tip shop around here um other than Glenorchy, is pretty much owned by some, um, what are they called, Hazel Brothers, which is a construction company. So, um, yeah, it's they put a lot of councils are putting in that to tender, so big business are going in and it's sort of changing the landscape. It's not, it's more about money, so the prices are going up. The stuff that's coming into those stores is not as diverse as ours because it's got to sell. Whereas because we're not worrying about our sort of, you know, as long as we can pay the rent now, staff, we're cool. So we can take a risk on a whole heap of other stuff that other people can't. When you're a non-for-profit business, you know, every little thing you've got to, you know, oh, that's not, that's too much the floor area for that thing. Whereas we'll, you know, we recently took five pallets of different coloured glass bottles just because they were either going to come to us or get thrown away. So we thought, all right, we'll give it a chance. We sold some of them. Hopefully they'll sell. But we can take that risk because, you know, our goal is to just keep running, not make, you know, a buttload of money. So that's, yeah, it'd be great if there were more non-for-profits in this, doing this because it, it's, for us, it's actually, you know, you're getting the stuff for free. We might pay rent, but we pay a relatively low rent because it's a tip. What else are you going to do there? And, um, yeah, that stuff, it's free. We've worked it out. Uh, it's about a dollar a kilo. Um, that's what we're worth. So, and kind of reflective of that, we take in about, you know, around a million kilos a year. We make around a million bucks a year. We spend about 800000 on staffing and the rest of it goes on, you know, electricity and tools and trucks and things. So, um, yeah, it's it's really it's a really good thing to do as a not-for-profit because you, you, your stock is free. So that's 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 the key. Is that you know, we, we can what take. What about the stuff that you wind up not being able to sell? Are you able to just chuck that back in the chute and sort of nod, wink, and you don't get charged for it? Or we don't get charged for it. No. Yeah. Um, part, it's part of that because the goal is to reduce landfill. Um, the council were really good with that and said they waive ninety percent of our tip fees. Um, certain things like if we do a decon and um, some of that stuff doesn't sell, that will pay to put up the tip because that's usually a building material so that's a different thing we don't pay for general waste it's just extras like you know we had some pcbs or some sort of toxic stuff that we might might end up at us because the customers not told us about it that kind of stuff we'll pay for but on the whole we don't which makes it it makes it really good for us it makes it yeah it's in their best interest not to charge it not to charge us um but knowing that we possibly will get charged yeah we our throwaway rate is about uh, well, last year it was 12%. So 12% of what comes in goes back to the tip, whether that's because it sat in the shop for a while or it got ruined in the rain or it was rubbish in the first place. Cool. So how do you deal with conflict? Because there's, there's pretty likely to be conflict with that many people working together. We're pretty good. Um, generally it's interpersonal sort of personality clash stuff. 
Um, we just try and deal with it head on. We have, if it, if it comes to that, we like um, generally myself or our HR um, manager, Mona, we'll try and do a mediated conversation in the first place like, and just sit down with them and find out. But then um, we've, if it gets to a, if it, it's much worse, we will take it on to, um, we have had mediated conversations with our EAP provider and um, with work workplace consul, um, consultants just when it gets to a really kind of violent place. We've had that a couple of times. Um, generally, I can't think of a time where it hasn't been worked out and the people have found a way to work together. Um, there's only, actually, no, there's one instance where someone was fired and kind of came back to try and seek retribution. But, you know, that was easily handled. That was, you know, just removing someone from sight. But, yeah, generally it's, again, lots of talking lots and lots of talking and trying to create a safe environment for people to actually air their grievances um, before it becomes a fight. Like every every general meeting and well, actually every morning we have a check-in with everyone just to make sure how's everyone going, you know, just even if it's just, oh, I slept badly or, oh, I'm having troubles at home, just to let sort of let everyone know what's happening a little bit with that person because it can be just I had a bad day and, you know, a fight might happen because someone's tired you know, or someone might snap at someone. And depending on the day, it could be nothing or it could be a massive thing. So it's trying to just keep keep the, keep the friendships going and that, that everything can be talked about. Nothing's too big that we can't talk about as a group of people and um, we'll deal with it. So it's, yeah, just keeping that, keeping everyone feeling on that same level that no one's more popular than anyone else and everyone's, you know, equal and everyone is as important as everyone else kind of alleviates a lot of the drama. Most of the stuff is just momentary and it's someone snapping at someone and someone else will tell them to pull their head in and that's the end of it. Like it's rare that we have something really, really bad. It's more likely to be between a customer and a staff member than staff members, to be honest. <laughs> yes, our customers mm, <laughs> can be a little entitled. Kevin. Yeah, um, two questions. Uh, one is, have you thought about franchising in Tasmania? No. No, <laughs> I would just say no. Never, it hasn't even come up. I'm mm, interesting. Haven't thought about that one. I mean, it would seem that uh, Monsterston and and all the small towns around the place could do with something like this. I yeah, they definitely could. Um, mm, might have to talk to the board about that one. <laughs> yeah, I think the co-op version of franchising is replication, really, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. And the other one was you seem to have a very good relationship with the council. How, how, was, that, how, how was that nurtured? <laughs> well, how, do you, how do you do that? Uh, I don't know sometimes, to be really honest. Um, <laughs> it hasn't always been like that. Uh, in the beginning, it wasn't so great, um, but we've proved ourselves to them. We've proved that we know what we're talking about and um, we're showing actual results and outcomes. So they kind of, they trust, they now trust us that we know what they're doing. Um, the higher up in the council sort of you go, the more they like us. Like the aldermen and the councillors really like us because the public like us. So they're really supportive of us. Once we get down lower into sort of, say, say the management of the tip and the heart, they have a a bit of a different relationship with us they see our they see our value but they don't really like us 
<laughs> we get in their way. We stop them stealing copper from the tip and we um, they have to follow rules that are set up by the council. So, like, they're not allowed to, like, the workers of the tip aren't allowed to take anything from the tip. They want something that's dropped off. They need to bring it to us. We have to price it and sell it to them. We do that all the time. We do it really, really cheaply, but they don't like that. So depending on the management of the tip at the time or the workers, it can be quite fraught on the ground, but the council and everyone else in the council absolutely really loves and support us. So the tip kind of just have to get on with doing their job. And we try to, yeah, not get in each other's way. But it's been a real struggle. And even there's some people in the council that don't like us, but we know who our allies are and we've learned to use them in the best way we can. Another case of precious metals creating conflict, eh? Yes. And it doesn't help that we ask, we don't ask them for anything. We don't ask them for any money. We, we They don't fund us. So they kind of like we're doing something for them that's almost free. Are you currently the biggest worker-owned co-op in Australia? As far as I know, yes. Yes. 33. Yes. Um, but... Yeah, I, that's what we've always been under the assumption. I think when we hit 33, um, old coordinator Molly was like, we're the biggest now, but um, yeah. <laughs> we claim it until somebody tells us we're wrong. <laughs> I think there was one briefly. The, the CMAC Industries in Sydney was uh, was bigger than that, I think. But, uh, yes, they are no more. So. <laughs> and we're still here. <laughs> yeah, Although, that's... yeah, 30 is pretty hard. 30 is yeah, that was hard. A a transition from a private company into a co-op. So oh, quite, a, quite a different situation. Definitely. That would be um, hard. Yeah, I wouldn't like That would yeah. be extremely hard. Yeah, oh, they were doing a good job of it, but they, a whole bunch of circumstances combined to, uh, yeah, just yeah. basically pull the plug. Uh, very unfortunate, really. That would have been, uh, would have been very good. So... There's Food Connect up in Brisbane, which is an amazing food hub thing. And they've recently, um, well, a couple of years ago, done a great big uh, crowdfunder and actually bought their own warehouse that they were using for many years. And are you thinking of actually buying your premises in any way or is that um, an option where you are? We're not thinking of buying this premises. Uh, the council... Um, Speaking to some of the, the sort of uh, facilities people and that, th there's nothing else that can really go there. So it's always going to be that tip shop, whether we run it or not. So we're happy to stay there forever, but we do, that's, um, we're actually doing yet another strategic development next month where we are, that's on the table to buy another site. The next site we get, we'll actually buy. Um, we need, yeah, COVID and weirdly was very, very, very good for us financially. So we want to use that to, you know, use that growth. So we use that to hopefully buy somewhere, potentially our next um, site for our e-waste facility and, yeah, start to solidify ourselves because, you know, the last lease we signed to the council took two years to negotiate. So that's coming up again. So it would be good to have something in our back pocket in case it all gets too hard. Yeah, yeah, and I guess following up from the question I asked before about the uh, the lack of a tip face in Canberra, how, do you reckon it would work without having the tip face to scavenge or uh, having having access to your, your weird little concrete chute with a bobcat would be good enough? It would now. 
Um, now, since we've got the new, since we've had the new site, um, the biggest thing has been getting people to drive through our driveway. So in the last uh, sort of since 2015, we've seen, we probably have about 70% of the cars driving to the tip shop, driving through our driveway first. So we can take whatever we can out of their car before they go up the tip. You, it definitely can be done. And in Sydney, when I worked at the Bauer, I ran the um, collection and rehoming service. We didn't have a tip in Marrickville. We had a truck and we had five days a week of donations and pickups. So it can be done without a tip. You just have to really um, market your the donations thing and getting people in the habit of coming to you to drop off or offering a pickup service. And the that's like the Marrickville, um, the Bauer has been running for a similar amount of time since the mid nineties as well. And they started off in a very similar way, one truck, a few people. And yeah, there they are like 20 something years later, still doing it. So yeah, as long as you can get the people to you and in a place that's easily accessible, easy to drive in and drive out of, and you market it in the right way, you can do this anywhere. And we found now that um, since, well, I did stats the sort of 2021 were um, 75% of our stock came from donations and 25% came from us salvaging from the tip. And when we started, that was probably 10% donations and 90% salvage. So because we're there now, the stuff isn't going up to the tip to be salvaged. So yeah, it's training, it's sort of training and encouraging people to come to you and yeah, and most people are happy to do that because that's a solution for them. You know, it might be a solution to the problem, but it gets their waste out of their hair and gives it somewhere else to deal with. Cool. Anyone else got any final questions before we wrap up? Uh, I'd just like to really thank you, Jason. That's uh, that's been this is a this is a recording that will that will be very useful. Ah, cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I like, I'd love, yeah, if anyone's in Hobart, come and say hello to us. I'd love to show you around. It's like, yeah, even, I mean, I now, yeah, as I said, I've been there nearly six years. I came from the Bauer and I'm still astounded as to what we do every day and the stuff and the ways that, um, the ways that the, the like people in the co-op just come up with different ideas to do stuff and ways to recycle and ways to, you know, pull stuff apart and salvage this part and that part and it's just incredible and everything like like it's probably the best job I've ever had and I come from a <laughs> fashion marketing background so I was part of the problem for a long time and to see to see the other side of it now and see the ugh, horrible amounts of clothing and trash fashion that comes in like it's amazing what we do and we're just scratching the surface we just yeah we need one of yeah we need a resource in every town just to deal with the clothes cool all right I'm Probably got a bunch more questions, but we probably don't need to go in them at this point. We could go on for hours, but I think people probably want to uh, want to go and have their tucker and get a bit of a sleep and things like that. Um, so, yeah, Jason Richards, thank you very, very much for joining us from Resource Work Co-op. Um, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to me babble on. I do this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could have you back at one point too, for Anytime. sure. Anytime. <laughs> oh, there's always something new happening. I'll tell you all of how our timber reclamation trial goes. Yes, excellent. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. This has been another uh, another monthly meetup from uh, Co-Canberra, Co-Ops, Commons and Communities Canberra and Nina Canberra, New Economy Network of Australia, Canberra Regional Hub. <laughs>
<laughs> thanks, thanks Jason. A lot. It's really great. Great. Thanks, thanks a lot for listening. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.